You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Kings chapter 2. I read the text array this morning from 1 Kings chapter 2. It's a long and lengthy text. They are the last words of David given to his son Solomon. He tells him what to do spiritually. He tells him what to do politically. And then we see in the remaining of the cha- remainder of the chapter that Solomon then executes the words of his father. With the exception of Barzillai and Abiathar, one after another, the axe falls. And to the casual reader, it's almost out of the blue that all of a sudden now Joab's gone, right? Shimei's gone, Adonijah's gone. It's quick, it's sudden, it's final. It's shocking how it all transpires, but things are not always as they seem. It's it's not as quick as we might believe. Years ago, a friend of our family was relating his story uh, to our family, and he talked about a time in his life when he was devastated by sin and difficulties. He was talking to another friend, and with his uh, head in his hands, weeping, said to this friend, I don't even know how I got here. After surveying his life and where he was in that moment, in tears, I don't know how I got here. And his friend, in love, kindness, compassion, tenderness, and gentleness said, that's not true. You know how you got here. It was one bad decision at a time. And he's right. In our lives, there are times when we think that this decision, um, this direction, it's just one degree or two degrees, and it seems to be insignificant. But the cumulative effect of that is devastating. I'm not a pilot. I don't know. But I am told if you're off by one or two degrees, After a while, you will never land where you anticipated. And such is life. We make decisions. We make choices. What happened in our text was not just, oh, it's a whim, it's a chance. Solomon's angry. This was the culmination of lives. Listen to Ralph Waldo Emerson. He says, sow a thought, reap an action. So an act, reap a habit. So or plant a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. Reap a destiny. We have been conditioned in our society, um, in our culture today, that we can actually live our lives, we can, we can have ideas and thoughts, And we can have actions and activities that when we do them, there are no consequences. Nor should there be. And so we are raising a generation in our churches, in our communities, that believe that you can do whatever you want, any way you want, as often as you want, and there never will be, nor should there be, consequences. Now let me confess something to you this morning. Um, I am a generation X. You know what that means? No one knows what that means. I was born from 66 to 76. Okay? We have, we have names for people now. I'm a Generation X. 
the boomers, one and two, are from like 44 to uh, 66, one and two. The next generation past me must be X, Y. I don't know why, but it's Y. Who's on first? What's on second? X, Y, right? But this concept of there are no consequences for your action is foreign to at least my generation and the generations before me, right? What are this, what's that? Amen. All right, and it's true. This, this concept that you can do what you want any way you want, believe what you want, that, that ideas don't have consequences is foreign. A matter of fact, one of the, the uh, statements that resonate with me and probably most in my generation is this. Everything happens for a reason. And sometimes the reason is that you're stupid and made bad decisions. Right? And we believe that to be true. I cannot tell you how many times in my life I heard this statement from either my mother, my father, a school teacher, a police officer, a drill sergeant. Well, what did you expect? Right? Or this kind statement along the same vein, that's what you get. Or this very compassionate statement, you made your bed. Yeah, you heard that. And, and because we understood and we had this concept that, that when you act in a way or you believe something, eventually that belief will turn to action, that action will turn to a habit, that habit will turn to a character, that character will define a destiny. This morning, I'm not trying to be callous or cold or unkind. I know and understand that life does happen. And bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people, and sometimes we're put in a position, and it's not our fault. We live in a broken world. And we all know intuitively that this world, the way it is now, is not the way it was designed. And sometimes there is grief and tragedy because it's the consequence of someone else's sin and behavior. And I get that, and I understand that. But we as believers must stop being surprised when we plant and we sow to the flesh and we continue to disregard God's word, live contrary to his ways, and then somehow be surprised when all of this planting and all of this harvesting finally comes to fruition. And so what I'd like to do this morning is quickly look at the lives of the men that are mentioned in our text and answer the question, how did I get here? How is it that I lost my head? And I submit to you this morning, it wasn't just in one rash moment from Solomon. It was a thought, an idea, an action, a habit, a character, and a destiny. We'll start with Abiathar. We'll go in alphabetical order. Abiathar, the priest, he is the 10th high priest of the Jews. Um, he is a man of the cloth. Whatever that means to you, that's what he is. He, he is the high priest, and his life starts out tragically, actually. He was a very young man when Saul sent soldier, soldiers to Nob um, to execute all of the priests and their families. And here he was as a child, takes off for his life, 
because he was next. He finds David. Tells David what happened. David feels a sense that his, this is his fault. He went there, remember, to get the bread from the tabernacle. And so David and his heart, and Abiathar's heart is knit together. They're just knit together. And we do see in Abiathar's life, there was a man who had a passion for God, for what is right, um, for the priesthood. He was instrumental in bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. And when David later on is on the throne, and Absalom rebels against David, Abiathar, the priest, stays true. This is his life. I mean, we, we see it. We've watched it. We've chronicled it through the word. This is Abiathar. He's been faithful. But when Adonijah now comes into power, Abiathar sides with him. And I have to be honest with you. You know, I read this over again. I, I try to think, did he do it on purpose? And I don't know. But I have a hunch that Abiathar just followed Adonijah because he was the oldest son. It was logical that he would be the next king. But he shows up at his party, and he shows up there, unbeknownst to him, or knownst to him, it's treason. And so Solomon has to deal with him. But I want you to notice, because of a decision in the present, he loses the priesthood. But because of a lifestyle in the past, his life is spared. He doesn't die. He loses the priesthood but saves his life. Then you have Adonijah. Adonijah is the golden boy. And we know this because the Bible already told us that David never displeased his son. David never said to this kid, no. Adonijah, growing up, was a kid at the birthday party that everyone hated. Right? If you, took, if you were playing with a toy and he took it from you, he would get it back. And his mother or father would scold the kid for taking his toys. He was the one that was never told no. He was coddled and babied, and everything that he wanted, he got. This was Adonijah. He was living large, with uncontrolled passion. Never told no. No. And so he pursues power and sex. His whole life is a party. And so it makes sense now, when he has a shot for the kingdom, oh, he's going to take it. Why? He's been a king of his own universe his whole life. This is not... Bizarre, this is what he did. He was the oldest. And so he lived this life of uncontrolled passion, and finally he lost his life because of it. He couldn't even help himself when his brother's on the throne to ask for his father's old wife. Out of control. Then you have Barzillai. We meet Barzillai, and he's 80 years old. Now, um, I don't know everything there is to know about 80-year-olds because I'm not there yet, okay? But I know this, that if you've lived to be 80, chances are the way you have lived is the way that you are, right? I mean, I mean, by and large, 80-year-olds don't change from year to year. I mean, if, if this is grandpa, you know we make excuses. Ah, that's grandpa. That's grandma. That's just the way she is. Why? Because... Over a lifetime, they become who they have been planting in their life. That's why it's so difficult when someone gets saved at 40, 50, or 60 years old. There's not instant change. It took a long time to get there. So we meet Barzillai, 80 years old, and Alexander White says of him that he is a highland chief. Now, that might not mean anything to you. It might mean something to Ian Cameron, right? A highland chief, and what he meant by that was, in Scotland, a highland chief was known 
for their hospitality. They would see a need. They would see a problem. They would see an area where someone was hurting or in trouble, and they would take care of it. And this is Barzillai. At 80 years old, he is still doing this. David flees for his life. Barzillai at 80 comes with beds, with food, and with drink. And he takes care of it. He's a man who is a man of goodwill, of compassion, generosity, loyalty, a lover of truth, and kindness. And because of that light, he secures blessings for his entire family. Barcelona is off the scene. And yet, because of his life now, his family benefits. And then there's Joab, overambitious, envious, self-seeking. The truth is, as we watch Joab's life through Scripture, he is king in everything but a crown on his head. He is the king of his own kingdom. There is no one else in David's time who totally disregards David, his children, and his commands like Joab. Joab was the guy that was going to be first place no matter what. He'd be first in the line for pizza. He would push our old people out of the way to get a hot dog at a picnic. And I know the hot dogs are delicious. They're not that good. All right? But this is Joab's mentality that I will be first. I will always be first. And I will do whatever I have to do to climb that ladder. I will kill two innocent men if I have to. Is it any wonder that David says earlier in life to, to, to Joab and his brother, you sons of Zerulia, you're too hard for me. This is when they're young. You're, you're too hard for me. Your hearts are hard. You're cold. It's always about you. Without Joab live by the sword, he dies by the sword. Next we find Shimei. Again, Alexander White. If you don't know Alexander White, you should read him. It's well worth the read. But he calls Shimei the reptile of the royal house of Saul. Reptile. And if you remember Shimei from way back, Shimei is a man of uncontrolled anger. This is the guy that is behind you at the light. It just turned green for 1.5 seconds, and he is laying on the horn. Right? And you can see his face just his veins are coming out of his head. He's screaming, what's wrong with you? The light has turned green. This is a guy who's throwing stuff around when he's mad. He's slamming doors. He's kicking and punching. He is out of control. This is shitty. He curses. He casts stones. He cries to David, you're a bloody man. And his anger blinds him to truth. He's blinded. He says to David, you're a bloody man. You, you've, you're, the blood of Saul is on your hand. Can I tell you something? The blood of Saul was never on David's hand. Never. Matter of fact, David twice could have dispatched him, but he doesn't do it when given the opportunity. So this madness, this anger, has blinded him to truth, so much so that when Saul, Solomon says, hey, if you cross the river Kidron, you're going to die. His servants run, and he's angry and greedy. And he follows them, and his uncontrolled passions end his life. Look at this list, and it's like, wow, these people are messed up, aren't they? I mean, just to, to look over their lives as we've watched them through Scripture, their lives are a mess. They are 
selfish, they are angry, they are greedy, they are uncontrollable, their passions have got the best of them, they are envious, self-serving, self-seeking, they are the center of their own universes. And we certainly could never relate to that, could we? There's a contemporary song that I, I really do enjoy. And it talks about the fact that as we look at the lives of these men and women of the Bible, that we're not that far removed. We see these, these glaring flaws in others, and sometimes we act as if they're not within us. The song goes, I'm learning to stand the more that I fall down. It's the law of inversion. It's all turned around. I'm staggered by the clash inside my soul. So purpose for good, but inclined for evil. I was born depraved, created for the divine. With death in my bones, in my heart, I turned alive. I'd love for Eden, but I'd kill for Rome. A native in a land that's not my home. It's justice and mercy, the old dichotomies all along the front lines of my heart in both doubt and unbelief. The sinner and saint, the old arch enemies, all at war in me. Isn't that our experience? We look at Shimei, we look at Joab, we look at Adonijah. And we know that this struggle is in all of us. Church of Jesus Christ, quit pretending like it's not. Quit pretending like we're so, we've got it all covered now. It, we ignore this conflict within. It is there, it is alive, it is well. We must stop pretending. The song goes on to talk about grace that delivers us. He says, you are the beginning and you are the end. Into your great reversal, I am born again. A beautiful redemption, you leverage even sin. And me, your final victory, I know you'll win. Into light from the shadows, into light from the grave, into love, into love. This is redemption. It's redemption. And this is what God has called us to. To acknowledge these conflicts in our life, to deal with them. Church of God, listen to me. We cannot continue to sow and plant to this flesh with our greed, our lust, our envy, our self-centeredness, our pride, and then expect to be walking in a way that shows that we are born-again believers. It, it can't be done. And we're surprised when our entire lives are lived working and giving to the flesh and what it produces. We should not be surprised today. Let me share a verse with you that you're familiar with. Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9. Here's what the Bible says. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Don't be deceived. Don't let someone pull the wool over your eye. Don't deceive yourself. God is not mocked. And that literally means you cannot thumb your nose at God. Like, pfft. Who cares? doesn't matter. Why? Because he's God. We can't continue to thumb our nose to him, and because he has a law. And the law is sowing and reaping. What you sow or plant, you will reap and harvest. We have farmers here today. You understand these things. You plant a seed, it doesn't come up in that hour. It takes time. But when it does come up later on, it comes up in a fullness. You get the same thing you planted, and you get more of it. We had our uh, in-home fellowships on Thursday. They were talking about planting and harvesting. And one of the guys said, you know, I planted corn, and what came up was onions. 
Now listen, if onions came up, they didn't come up because it was a corn seed. It was because the corn didn't grow and the onion was already there, Henry. And Henry knew it. He just said it to be funny. It's like, no, I plant this seed. This is what I expect. And here's what God says to you and I this morning. When we choose to thumb our nose at him and his laws, we're going to reap what we sow. He says if we reap to the flesh, we will of the flesh reap, or, or, sow, or yeah, reap. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. Now let me just tell you what Galatians tells us are the, are the sins of the flesh to be aware of. We find in Galatians 5, 19-21. Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, strife, jealousy, anger, envy, and drunkenness. And Paul says, believer, if we continue to, to, to plant and to invest and give our time and things to the flesh like this, what you will reap, what you will produce is corruption. Now listen to me. That word corruption literally means a decomposing corpse. Ever have a smell in your house or around the yard? It's like, something's not right. Ah, something really stinks. And you, you know that smell. I mean, it's not like, no, that's, I mean, it's a smell that's like, this is not right. And it takes you a while, but finally you find that mouse, right? Or that hamster that got out. Or the frog. I saw Justin the other day, and he said, kids brought home four toads in the house. And after a while, Parker came down and said, I have three. Did you ever find that toad? No. Okay. So, in a little while, you'll smell something. What's that smell? It's putrefying. Why? It is death. It is decay. And, and Paul says, listen, if you thumb your nose at God and you continue to do this, what you will produce is, of the flesh, fleshly results, death, decay, and stink. And stink. Well, stink. On the other hand, if we sow to the Spirit, we will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We cannot continue to live in line with God's truth and not receive spiritual benefits. God's very own life is within us. God's life within us looks attractive to all those around us. It's the law of sowing and reaping. He says, understand, don't be weary in well-doing. For in due season, you will reap if you take that. Church, you will reap good and bad. It's coming. We must invest in the spirit and not the flesh. Here's a fact this morning. If you're saved, if you know Christ, there is a desire in your heart and life to say, Spirit of God, I want to produce your fruit. Right? But it will not be done by you hoping so and wishing so and sitting and continually sowing to the flesh. A.W. Tozer said this, The man who would know God must give time to him. The fact is, spiritual fruit does not come from just wanting and hoping. It does not come from sleeping. It does not come from cartoons. It does not come from call of duty. It doesn't come when you're lost in your hobbies. It doesn't come from vegetating on social media for hour upon hour upon hour until your eyes are about burned out of your head and you doze off to sleep. It does not come that way. The real work of transformation from the greedy, selfish, angry, controlling, self-seeking, overambitious, uncontrolled passions, 
fleshly corrupting behavior to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control comes when we plant and invest in the spiritual man and not the fleshly man. Now, I'm not talking about just being moralistic this morning and putting on, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just doing it harder. And that's not what I'm talking about. I understand grace here. I understand the gospel. Um, but listen to what uh, Charles Henry Spurgeon said. He said, "His he forgives our sins with the design of curing our sinfulness. We are pardoned that we may become holy, holy." And God's plan and purpose for each and every one of his people this morning is to understand our salvation, understand that we've been saved from sin in order that we can become holy. Holy. Let me ask you a question this morning. Believer, are you holy? Are we living holy lives? Let me direct your attention to 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. Um, I, I think it will help us understand the difficulty of what we're talking about this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 7, he says, But refuse profane and old wise fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Right? He says, listen, the stuff that's useless, ignore. Instead, exercise or train yourself for godliness. And godliness is being like God. It, it's, it's these moral characteristics that show the world, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Work at that. Exercise for that. Verse number 8, he goes on to say, For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable in all things, having promise of life that now is, and of that which is to come. Okay? Bodily exercise, profitable, but not like godly exercise. Um, David, last year, gave me this Fitbit. Right? I don't wear a watch, I just, this is a Fitbit. And so what it does is it keeps track of your steps. So, like, every hour I have 250 steps I'd have to do, and I'm in competition with Kim, who walks way too much, and so I'm always running around just doing those things to try to keep up with her. I was talking the other day with her about how hard it is at 48 to stay in any kind of shape. Do you know why? Because I love corn dogs. I do. I love corn dogs. Someone told me they never had a corn dog. I love corn dogs. I love french fries. I love chocolate. It's like, I would just one time like to stop and forget about the walking, forget about the exercise, and just indulge my life in what I love. But I don't. My wife won't let me. That's the first reason. And the second reason is because I have boys. And, and all of my boys, they want to box, they want to wrestle, they want to exercise. And at 48, I'm just not ready yet to give up to my 17-year-old. I'm, I'm just not. And, and I think about those things. And I think someday we might have grandchildren. And I'd like to be in at least decent shape, if God allows me, to play with my grandkids. And so I, I want to work at these things. Now listen, if I don't have grandkids by 60, this is all going. I, I, all of this. All of this is gone. I'm going to be Jabba the Hutt. No pressure. But it's going. Okay? Now, bodily exercise is profitable. It's profitable. But Paul says, listen, there's something more profitable. It's training yourself in godliness. He says, because it's profitable not only for this life, but for the future. 
And then he goes on to say in the text, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all expectation. What I just said about godliness and pursuing it, it's worthy. You need to accept it. Accept it. It's good for me now. It's good for me forever. And then he goes on to say this. He says, for therefore, because of this, because godliness is so important in our lives, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those that hate you. He says, listen, godliness is important. It's not for the pastor, the elder, the deacon, the Sunday school teacher. It's for all of us. And it's so important that you better accept that what God is telling you is true and it's faithful and it's worthy. And it's so important that you and I are supposed to be toiling, laboring, working. Can I tell you something? My flesh never wants to do what the Spirit wants. Never. Never. It wants to sleep. It wants to slack off. It wants to watch TV. It wants to get caught up in sports. It wants to just do whatever. And this battle is raging. And believer, it's work. It's hard. What God says is, it's worth it. Not only for the life to come, but for right now. We can trust the living God. He is good. If we want to reap spiritual life, we must plant and invest in our spiritual life. So this morning, here, here's where we're at. Okay. For, for, for some of us, we're like, yeah, you're right. I got it. I need that encouragement. That's what I'm doing. I, I, I know it's difficult. I know it's hard by God's grace and by his salvation, by the spirit, by the word, by the church, by others. I'm, I'm on this route. But for some of us, we're here this morning saying, you know what? It's not me. My MO, my default setting is this is constantly happening for, for me, and I know I've been reaping things in my marriage, in my relationships, with my kids, with my neighbors. It's because I've been continually planting to this flesh, and I feel hopeless now. Okay, don't feel hopeless. Here's what you do. Number one, you repent. You repent. Believer, if you've been filling and feeding your flesh, you repent. That's not what a believer does. He saved us. He forgives us in order to cure us from our sinfulness, to pardon us so that we can be holy. So I repent. What is repentance? B.B. Warfield says repentance is a change of mind that issues in amendment of life. Or we would say a change in mind that issues in a change of behavior. Repentance is this. I believe that what I'm doing is fine, that there are no consequences. It's okay. I enjoy this. This is who I am. Uh, but now I see it's wrong. Therefore, I repent. I change my mind, and I turn. I turn. I say, God, I was wrong. That was evil. That was wicked. Dear God, forgive me. Cleanse me. Help me. Give me your grace. Give me your strength. And it's not a one-time deal. Faith and repentance is a way of life. A way of life. We repent, and then what we do is we look to his grace and his power. Let me close with this passage of scripture this morning. Second Peter chapter 1. And listen to the words of Peter, the believers here. Second Peter 1, he starts out, he says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, you know what he's talking to there? He's talking to you. He's talking to me. To those who have received the like precious faith that by the blood of Christ we've been washed, 
We've been cleansed. We've been forgiven. We've been made new. His spirit lives within me. I am now a child of the king. He's talking to us today. That's you. That's me. So he wants to instruct them. And he goes on to say this. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called you to glory and virtue. God has given you everything you need. Be obedient. Called to live in harmony with God's moral character. It never means we become part of God, but the more that we live in line with his nature, we look more like him. Verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption, right, that is in the world through lust. He doesn't stop there. He says, besides this now, right, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. It's God that worketh in you, but, but beside this now, verse number 5, giving all diligence, work, toil, labor, Add to your faith virtue and knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, um, charity, verse 8. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I'm doing these things, when I'm planting these seeds, when I'm investing in these things, what happens now is I am bearing spiritual fruit that people look at me and know, hey, there's something different about that man. There's something different about that woman. They're not like I am. They don't think like I think. Their priorities are different. They love people. They're kind. They're compassionate. They're loving. They care. It changes everything. Verse 9, but he that lacketh these things is blind. Cannot see afar off. He's forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. When we continue to feed our flesh, don't work in the spirit, we forget the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he saved us and changed us. Verse 10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if we do these things, we shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly to the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brother and sister in Christ, we must constantly go back to the gospel. Listen, Jesus Christ loved you the way he found you. He came to me. He sought me. He pursued me. He found me. That's our Savior. That's what he's done. But listen, he loved us too much to leave us the way that he found us. And he's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the church to help come alongside us and say, listen, start planting, start investing, start looking toward the spiritual part of your life. Don't be shocked, believer, when trouble comes and you've been investing in the flesh, you've been sleeping, watching TV, doing whatever you want to do, and you wake up one morning and say, I don't know how this ever happened to me. I'm telling you right now, here's how it happens. You had this idea, you had this thought, and that thought that you had, you sort of planted and you milled around with that, and it became an action. And that action became a habit, and that habit became a character, and that character became a destiny. Child of God, you can break all of that. But you better start planting seeds in the Spirit. You coming to church every week 
isn't enough. If this is it for you, well, did my job in church. Yep, heard the message. The lights are off, kind of funny, different. I'm out here. If that's it, you're in trouble, man. This is a daily toiling, working, because it's worth it. Not only for life, but life now. And so, this morning, you don't have to say, how did I get here? Often we know how we got here. What I'm encouraging you to do this morning is to see it for what it is, to repent, and go to God for grace, power, to today start planting seeds in our life. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.